Turn with me to Mark chapter 14. I started thinking that we had been in Mark chapter 14 for a long time, but it's a lot of verses. It's like 70 something verses. So we're not even going to finish Mark 14 this week because it was just too much. So we're going to be looking at 53 through 65 today in Mark chapter 14. Before we do so, let's go again to the Lord in prayer and ask for his help as we read and open his word. Let's pray. Our Lord Jesus, as we come again to your word, we pray that you would help us, particularly as we look at the untruth of the Jewish authorities here in this text, as we see the truth that you speak. We need help understanding the truth. We as people of yours, wrestle with the thing that you have given us that is most incredible and the things that we still try to hang on to that are not good at all. And so we need your help. We need you here with us as we open and study and hear and read your word today. So do that for us. Help us, guide us, show us your truth. Give us your mercy. It's in your name we pray. Amen. So I read through this passage, it made me think of a, an encounter that I had when we lived in Maryland, and it was a, a man that I met, very nice man, who came to our church office one day in order to proselytize our staff. He was a Jehovah's Witness, and he, along with a couple others, knocked on the door, and it may sound odd they would come to our church in order to proselytize us, but to be fair, our church office just looked like a house from the street. It was just a remodeled house. And so they came up and knocked on the door, as they typically do, because they were in the neighborhood. And then they came in, and we started talking. And rather have them preach to us in the office, I decided that he and I, this man that had come up to the door, should meet once a week and talk about what it is that we believe and kind of have a discussion with that we did that for about six weeks we met together his name was john i got to know john over the course of those weeks that we met together really interesting guy he was a vietnam vet he's a family man he was a heavy equipment salesman and then of course he was Job's witness so for a few weeks we went back and forth working through the scriptures together we we both had our bibles we actually agreed upon the king james bible as our kind of meet in the middle text that we would both use. And at the end of the last meeting, we finally came to this impasse. Not that we weren't there at the beginning, because we definitely were, but we came to a point where we could just no longer have fruitful discussion with one another. We weren't ever upset with one another or anything, but but John would not, could not, confess Jesus as the Son of God, second person of the Trinity. And while John and I remained in touch for a bit, we left with very, two very different confessions. And as nice as a man as he was, his confession will lead him to eternal condemnation. Why? Because in our text today, Jesus makes a confession about himself. He says something about himself that he is the Son of God, that he is the Son of Man who will come in power Jesus' confession about himself leaves no room for John and I, this nice man, to simply disagree and walk away having this minor point of contention in our theology. 
John and I had, maybe still do have, I don't know, I haven't talked to John in a long time, very different views about who Jesus is. We'll see a different view of Jesus coming from the Jewish authorities in our text. who They bring him before their group and they structure a defense against Jesus. And humanly speaking, their defense looks like something that preschoolers might throw together. But it's, and it stands in stark contrast to the confession that Jesus makes of himself. And that's for us is a helpful thing because not only is it for helpful for us to understand who Jesus is absolutely first and foremost as we come to God's word, we have to understand who he is, but also for us to see how we should stand in the face of falsehoods and then even deal with our own falsehoods. So as we consider this text, we'll use those two points of contrast with one another. We'll see first the false confession, and then we'll see Jesus' true confession. So with that, let's look together at the text. Mark chapter 14, starting at verse 53. Please stand with me in the honor of the reading of God's holy word. Mark chapter 14, starting at verse 53. And they led Jesus... To the high priest and all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes came together and Peter had followed him at a distance right into the courtyard of the high priest. And he was sitting with the guards warming himself at the fire. Now the chief priest and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but they found none. And many bore false witness against him, but their testimonies did not agree. And some stood up and bore false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another not made with hands. Yet even about this, their testimony did not agree. And the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But he remained silent and made no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? And Jesus said, I am, and you will see the son of man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And the high priest tore his garments and said, what further witnesses do we need? You have heard this blasphemy. What is your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving death. And some began to spit on him and to cover his face and to strike him, saying to him, prophesy. And the guards received him with blows. Amen. This is God's word. You may be seated. So, remember, it's just some context first. Last few weeks, Jesus is arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane. And Judas, remember Judas walks up to him and kisses him. And thus betraying him, Jesus is being taken away by this army of soldiers and these other thugs hired by the Jewish authorities. And... All of his followers fled. We even got a description of one of the followers fleeing without their clothing. And so this very just vivid description of what's going on. And so in our text today, we see that the Apostle Peter followed them closely. It's almost as if he kind of ran away. And as he was running, his adrenaline pumping, he just found this little bit of courage that he had. And he kind of followed them into the high priest's court. Now we're going to look specifically at Peter next week, but having mentioned him in our passage today, I think it kind of helps to set up this scene. They apparently showed up at the residence of the high priest, and they're going to try Jesus right there in the courtyard. 
There were probably several people wandering around that evening, wondering what's going on. What is this giant procession of people going around and they have this Jesus? So Peter probably just kind of blended in. This trial was happening late at night or even probably really early in the morning, like as far as like the wee hours of the night, which allows them to try him very quickly without a whole lot of fuss. So again, as we go through this, I want us to pay special attention to the nature of the testimony that the Jewish authorities give to us and kind of the structure of their defense versus that of Jesus, which is very plain to us. And we'll start first with that false confession. Look with me again at verse 53. They led Jesus to to the high priest, and all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes came together. This group of people would have formerly been known as the Sanhedrin, it's a group of elders, and they modeled this group of elders after the, the group of elders that was all the way back in Exodus 18 when Jethro came to Moses and said, hey, you can't do all this by yourself. And they picked a group of elders, which we still kind of model that today. And they called this group the Sanhedrin. They had lots of power. But because of the Roman occupation in Jerusalem and in the general Jewish state, they didn't carry the power of a death sentence like they normally would have. They normally would have been able to do that, but now Rome kind of took that over and said, you're not allowed to do this to people. And so not only did they find have to find Jesus guilty in their own courts, but they also had, were going to have to convince the Roman court that Jesus was guilty of some sort of capital crime before Caesar and against Caesar. And so the cards were kind of stacked against them, you know, because Jesus was an innocent man. Now notice the structure of their defense. Really reminds me as I read through this, if you have kids, you've experienced this at some level. It reminds me of the kid that has chocolate over their, all over their mouth, and then they're trying to accuse their siblings of the one who actually ate the cookies. It just doesn't make sense. Everyone sees that it's an absolute farce, and they persist nonetheless, more loudly and more upset than ever. Look with me at verse 55. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death. But they found none. They couldn't even find testimony. There was none. What about verse 56? For many bore false witnesses against him, but their testimonies did not agree. Typically this sort of thing would just be immediately thrown out in court. Because it's contradictory stories. Two things that are opposite can't both be true. Well, look at 57. And some stood up and bore false witness, saying, We heard him saying, I'll destroy this temple that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another not made with hands. Yet even about this, their testimonies did not agree. So now they stand up and they incorrectly quote Jesus. They took something out of context even that he had said. But even then, they couldn't get their testimonies together to all kind of match up each one of these attempts to make Jesus look like a criminal to 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 make him seem something that he's not were tricks that are as old as time itself they look just like false testimony that is given all over the world in courts even today just watch court cases there are people that say crazy things all the time. The difference, most of the time anyway, is that there is an impartial judge that sits over the court and doesn't allow nonsense in his courtroom. Ever. 
which is a good thing. That's how our whole justice system works, at least supposedly. In this scene, though, the Sanhedrin and the prosecution and the judge and the jury, all these people are all the same. And all of them have one thing in common. They hate Jesus. Every single one of them. Jesus was guilty before this court session even began, in their minds. And so, this is one thing that we need to understand when it comes to dealing with falsehood. And I think particularly our own. When, we come, when we're dealing with falsehood, when dealing with false confessions like these, we first need to look at our own hearts. Because many times... We're guilty of doing just what they're doing right here. We make things up to suit our own interests, to suit our own sins even. We fabricate evidence to support our own foolishness. We twist the truth against people, against the truth, even the scriptures, to make them say things that they don't say. We simply, you know, we take simple things, like something simple, like spending money, you know, justifying money that we just spent. We do this with eternal things. Like, you know, when we read the scriptures, we make them say things that we don't want them to say or that we do want them to say, vice versa. We don't want to submit to this authority that we have in front of us. We speak untruth in any context, whether it's something simple or something as formal as this kangaroo court that's happening in this high priest's yard. When we deal in deception, brothers and sisters in Christ, when we deal in deception in our own lives, we come off just as sleazy as these scribes and these Pharisees do here in this text. And a lot of times we do so under the guise of being nice and pleasant, or even while we shout, I stand for truth. So before we start pointing, before we start looking at all the others that deal in deception and falsehood, go stand in the mirror and deal with that one first because we all speak untruth at some level in our lives but when it comes to the false confessions that we deal with on a daily basis from others brothers and sisters in Christ we absolutely have to guard ourselves because the world only can give us that when they stand against God's word they stand against truth and they stand for falsehood The world will come to a situation like this, and like we see in this text, with their own truth. Rather than drawing upon the ultimate standard, which is, of course, God's holy word, they draw upon their own standard of truth, and so they get to decide what's right and what's wrong and and all those things. And so when they went to Jesus here, the assumption was that Jesus is obviously guilty, even though he's not guilty of anything wrong ever. The Jewish court system, if you read through the Old Testament and you see how the Jewish court system is set up, it's actually set up to prevent this sort of thing from happening. They call all these kinds of witnesses to come in. They're just preventing this sort of thing from happening. A person is supposed to have been presumed innocent until he was proven guilty. Proper evidence had to be brought in, just like any good court in the land, but not so with this one. And of course you know. When it comes to our world, not necessarily just the court systems, but the world in general, this of course isn't the truth. Isn't the truth. The world has exchanged the truth about God for a lie, and so they will assume that lie in every conversation from the beginning. Rather than man being the problem and God being the answer, they have reversed it. Just like it is plainly done in our text today. God is the problem. Man is the answer. And notice, even though their testimonies about Jesus didn't agree at all, 
They didn't have to. They all agreed on one thing. He had to die, no matter what. Their attempt at having a sensible court case is laughable here because there was no case to be had against Jesus. They give testimony, and they can't even agree on the simple facts of the case. And notice what else. I know we've already said this. They incorrectly restate Jesus' thing about rebuilding the temple. Verse 58. We heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another not made with hands. This specifically comes from John chapter 2. What did Jesus say in John 2? Well, he said, destroy this temple, and I will rebuild it in three days. It's John chapter 2, verse 19, if you want to look at that. He was talking about himself. John even points that out to us. As John is writing the book, he even says, and he was talking about himself here. John may not have understood that at the time, but later when he wrote it, he very much understood that. Yet, they were still convinced that Jesus was going to somehow break their temple down and rebuild another one. And this was their incriminating evidence against it. They took the truth that existed, that they knew existed, and they twisted it for their own usage. Brothers and sisters in Christ, this is as old as the serpent saying to Eve, you shall not surely die. This has been happening a long time. And notice, and this is the important part for us, and I think particularly in our world today, understand this. Notice how these educated, sensible people act when they're threatened. Verse 63. Jesus told the truth, right? Verse 63. And the high priest tore his garments and said, What further witness do we need? You have heard this blasphemy. What is your decision? They condemned him as deserving death. And some began to spit on him and cover his face and strike him and saying, Prophesy. They're playing a game with him. If you read another uh, version of this another one of the gospels said they're basically covering his face and hitting him and they're saying prophesy who is it that hit you they were so adamant against the truth that they had just heard that not only are they going to just speak rank untruth but they're going to become violent as well sinclair ferguson says of this he says that they become beasts of passion so passionate about the lies that they believe that they attack the very Son of Man with their fists and they spit on Him in defiance and in disrespect. I can't even fathom. But we live in a world that not only hates God, but because they hate God, they hate the truth. And they show it in every word from their mouths, every inclination of their hearts, every single action that they do, every single post that they make. And we have to be careful. Christians, we have to be careful with this. Not be careful against those people because they're out to get you, but you need to be careful that you don't offer up another man as the solution to the problem. The problems with our country, the problems with this world, aren't the fact that the wrong man is in charge. The problem is, is, is with people. It's with sin. And as soon as we look for men to fix our issues, we become guilty of the same thing that these Jewish leaders are. They didn't want Jesus as a Messiah. They wanted another one. 
And if we think violence is the answer, we become beasts of passion as well, attempting to use violence to beat our opponents into submission to the truth. If you read history at all for any length of time, you know that history tells stories of similar attempts, you know, almost every year in some part of the world, this is being used, this tactic. Thousands of stories start with this, and they all have the same ending, and it's never good. We have to be careful, brothers and sisters in Christ, because the truth that we have doesn't rest on our ability to speak it, doesn't rest on our ability to beat others into submission for it. It rests upon God alone, and he is true whether or not I believe it or not. What he has to say is right, whether or not I agree with it or anyone agrees with it for that matter. He doesn't need our heroics. He needs us to have a true confession of what we believe. And that leads me to the next point, the true confession. Look with me at verses 60 and 61. The high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But he remained silent and made no answer. So you notice first, Jesus is asked to give testimony concerning their false accusations that have been made. Have you ever been in this position, you know, where someone makes these just bad false accusations that have no merit or, or base or foundation, and you're asked to answer for them? It's really hard to give an answer for them. It's really hard to say, well, of course I didn't do it. Because then it's just your word against theirs. It made me think when I was doing this, it brought up an old, an old wound from kindergarten. I had to take a standardized test in kindergarten. And if you know something about me and my personality, I, I'm not a standardized test to anything. I just don't like rules in general. And so we were separated from all the other students, you know, like around the room. And there were these partitions put in front of like me and another student. And so they were separating us. And these partitions were nice. On one side of them, they had this really nice painting and was really interested. And for a distracted kid like me, I could have stood to look at a painting rather than a standardized test. But the teacher gave me the blank side of the partition. So naturally, like the little kid that I was, I threw a fit. And I said, this stupid test. And the teacher heard me say, stupid teacher. So I got paddled which they still did back in those days. If you can imagine, I received lots of those in my time. Uh, they sent a letter home. They called my parents. Really big deal. But it wasn't true. I didn't say stupid teacher. I didn't make a comment about her. I wanted to see the painting. It was a stupid test. No matter how much I protested, no one believed me. What good would have come from Jesus... Speaking to these bogus charges here, none. The cards were stacked against him. He wasn't going to win. And so he remained silent. Now, of course, Jesus could have silenced creation with a single thought. But he sat, as Isaiah says in Isaiah 53, like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, like a sheep that sat before his shearers, is silent. He opened not his mouth. Now, this doesn't mean that you and I should be silent all the time, yet it should give us pause before we open our mouths. We tend to be a people who are very slow to listen, very quick to speak, because we have all the answers, or at least I, I think I do. 
So when it comes to a biblical defense, we want to make sure that we are talking about the same thing with folks who have questions for us, because so many times that's the problem. In my discussions with John, the the man who was Jehovah's Witness, they boiled down to one question. Who is Jesus? We could have talked about so many other things. If you've ever studied the Jehovah's Witness religion, there are lots of quirky little things that gave me pause and made me think, hmm, that's strange. But at the end of the day, I kept the question clear, who is Jesus? Because to me, for John and for his family and for all the people that he shared this with, there was no other more important question than who is Jesus? So when Jesus has asked this question, finally, in verse 62, verse 61 and 62, he doesn't shrink from this question at all. Again, the high priest asked him, are you the Christ? The son of the blessed. And Jesus said, I am. And you will see the son of man seated at the right hand of power and coming with clouds of heaven. He didn't shrink back at all. Not only does he claim to be the son of God, but he claims to be the the son of the father. He also claims to be the son of man seated at the right hand of power. And every scribe and elder and Pharisee there We've immediately recognized this. Turn with me to Daniel chapter 7. Daniel chapter 7 gives us where Jesus quoted from here. And this prophecy is something that the Jewish people couldn't wait to to see. They couldn't wait for this person to come down and come in power and authority. Daniel chapter 7 verses 13 and 14. And I saw in the night visions and behold with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and he was presented before him and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. And when you and I, as brothers and sisters in Christ, read this, we know absolutely this is about Jesus Christ. If nothing else, we know it's about him because he says it's about him. But can you imagine the people being there hearing this? He claimed that he is this son of man. In Daniel chapter 7, that he has dominion, he has a kingdom, and that people from all nations and languages will worship him, and he will have an everlasting dominion. This is a continuation of the promises that have been given to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, David, and following. The covenant people of God knew this promise. If Jesus is this son of man mentioned in Daniel chapter 7, then every single man and woman alive should be on their faces before him and beg forgiveness. All the ones there that stand and accuse him and bring those false accusations against him, as soon as he says, I am this one, they should beg forgiveness. But instead, keep reading, what do they do? They gather around him, they spit on him, and they hit him. And the one who was given power and authority, honor, power, and glory took a beating. 
He took it from the other guards as well. He took another one from Pilate's guards later and had his body absolutely broken and destroyed so that you and I could have ours restored one day. The Son of Man who deserved a spot next to the Ancient of Days was treated worse than any criminal so that you and I could have a place at the table of the King for all eternity. When it came to that truth, Jesus gave a flawless confession concerning who he was. And the people there exchanged that truth for a lie. Here's the question for us. When it comes to you, when you're asked, what confession will you give? It's an important question for us. Do you profess in the saving goodness of man? Or do you talk about Jesus as the only Savior for man? For the Christian, there's nothing else to talk about, really, when it comes to our conversations with unbelievers in particular. Whether they or whether or not they agree with us on worldly issues is one thing. And that's fine to have those conversations. It's, it's okay to have conversations about important things, I guess. But what they believe about Jesus is the most important thing. That's what matters most of all. And I've talked with many of you about this over the years. And there's a lot of fear associated with having those conversations when it comes to giving a a biblical defense like Jesus does here. We're always afraid that being able to say the right thing or not saying, or not saying the wrong thing. You know, and what do I say when they, when they ask this? And how do I answer this question and so forth? But the answer to that is always the same. When Jesus was asked this question, what did he quote? He quoted God's word. And it just so happens that we have that available to us. So the, the answer to that question, I'm afraid, what am I going to say when someone asks me to give a defense for the things that I believe? Know your Bible. Jesus didn't do anything fancy here. He just quoted from Daniel chapter 7. And we're not Jesus, of course. I understand that. But it's one of the reasons that we preach through books of the Bible here. You need to know it. You need to see it. Every bit of it. We read it all the time. We have it in front of us all the time. We have it at the forefront. When it comes to our confession, when it comes to the truth that we have as a church, there's really nothing else. It's our standard for faith and practice and everything that we do. It's the structure of the defense that I have when it comes to, Mr. Chipman, what do you believe? I can only say these things. Any other confession is built on an absolute lie. And so if you're here and you're a believer, you have God's word. Study it. Know it. If you're here and an unbeliever, I want to challenge you with that. Where do you get your truth? From yourself or from others, from, from some other unreliable source? Rather than trust in things that are passing away, trust in Jesus who did not, but is with the Father right now. He gave up everything for his followers who had nothing to offer so that they, you and I, could have everything. Jesus died for his enemies. Jesus died for people who give false confessions. Just read the story of Paul. 
even while we were yet enemies, he died for us. And so if you're an unbeliever, he'll forgive you too. Call upon his name and be saved. In conclusion, for the church, closely examine all that you hear and say. Closely examine all that you think. Examine your own heart. Are we trusting in the lies of the world? Are you trusting in the words of the Savior? Are you telling others about the lies of the world? Are you telling them about the truth of Jesus? Trust in Jesus. He is the Son of Man who comes in power and dominion. Give others that same truth. Let's go to him in prayer. Our Lord Jesus, as we come to you, as we hear and read these words that you gave to us so long ago, they are still just as true today as they were then. And they have not changed. And that's what's great. Because so much about this world has changed, but you have not You are the same yesterday, today, and forever, and your throne is forever an everlasting kingdom and shall never perish, and you have called us to sit at your table forever and always. Lord, help us to be worthy of that, and also, Lord, help us to tell others about the hope that we have. The hope that we have doesn't rest here on earth, but it rests with you, and so help us to tell others about you, Lord Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen.